0: Are you crying? Welcome to episode 1,050 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com, and I'm joined, as always, by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Hi. This is our first almost round number together as co-hosts, <laughs> or half-century milestone. Not quite a, a big one, but still 50 episodes takes a long time to get to 50 episodes for some podcasts.
1: I don't think I've been present for all 50, though. Didn't you do some <laughs> when true. I was on You were vacation? traveling. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so my run number is going to be something like 1,057.
0: <laughs> all right. We'll celebrate then. <laughs> so I don't have anything to say about the Chris Coughlin slide. Sam Miller already has done one of his patented crowd analyses where he will look at all the people who were looking at that play, and that's always fun. But that was awesome yeah (laughs) no that that. was that was spectacular i i can't tell there's two ways uh you
1: can look at this we've seen some really wizard like i think slides from players like ichiro and then you think oh well only a player like that could do it but then you see chris Coughlin do that and you realize oh they're (laughs) all elite
0: athletes Every single one of them (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I was really taken aback by this. Like we watched so many baseball highlights that most of them were sort of intellectually impressed by. If a player does something good, you say, oh, you know, that was impressive. But we've seen a hundred plays that look more or less like that. Uh-huh. And this is just totally different this doesn't look like a baseball play this looks like it comes from a different sport and it's Chris Coghlan so yeah I was really rocked back on my heels by this one so yeah
1: I wonder at one point he decided that was going to be his move like is that (laughs) instinct has he done it before I haven't read any articles and like interviews with Coghlan about it I'm sure it's all that has been asked in the Blue Jays clubhouse (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I don't know it I guess it's a little like you'll see a player in like a a hockey shootout try some really weird maneuver sometimes they'll like yeah. pick the puck up on their stick and try to put it in but at least then you have like time to plan because you know you're coming up in like 30 or 60 seconds Coughlin had a split <laughs> second unless he reached base and he said I am going To somersault
0: (laughs) over the catcher Even if there's
1: not a play at home plate (laughs)
0: Yeah, I don't know The Blue Jays entered the day With the second fewest runs scored In the majors, I think So maybe it was just a pure desperation move Like we really need to score some runs Even if it requires a maneuver That no baseball player has performed Any time (laughs) recently So thanks Chris Coghlan For giving us one of the highlights of the year You have something else you want to talk about?
1: Well, I guess just touching on that real quick, just in the last two days, here are two things that are kind of unbelievable that we've seen as if it was nothing. We've seen Chris Coughlin score like he just scored, and that Mm -hmm. is miraculous. And then the day before, a pitcher I'd never heard of, Ariel Hernandez, shows up for the Cincinnati Reds. He was a selection a little over a year ago in the minor league portion of the Rule 5 draft, so like the lowest of the low, and then uh, JJ Cooper talked about Ariel Hernandez is potentially possessing two 80-grade pitches, which, by the way, that's insane. Comes <laughs> yeah. up, he throws both of those 80-grade pitches against the Brewers, retires all eight batters, he faces with five strikeouts and then the Reds immediately demote him. Oh, by the way, he was throwing 100 miles per hour and he has Craig Kimball's <laughs> curveball. So... <laughs> It's like, it's nothing. It just shows up. What is it? What would that have meant if it was 15 years ago, before we had all this velocity inflation? And then you have this yeah. nobody show up throwing 100 with a breaking ball at 88 that's fantastic. And then they just yeah. demote him, even though they're the Reds. The Cincinnati <laughs> yeah. Reds demote him. And I'm sure he'll be back because he's great. Granted, in his record, he's kind of walked like. Nine batters per nine innings, so he hasn't been very good. But it looks like he's mostly figured it out. I don't know. He's great. He's great. But he just shows up, does that, goes away. Nobody cares. And then Chris Coughlin scores like that. And then today we're going to talk about God knows what. But it's like those are just amazing sporting. Anyway, let's talk about something else. The
0: Pirates called yeah. up a guy. Okay. Yeah. Is it possible that the Reds have become our most talked about team? It's not. Uh, we're talking about the Reds every, up there. every episode now. There's a lot. It's.
1: I really wanted to be dismissive of them, but like yeah. Lorenzen is interesting and Iglesias I is know. interesting. There's Hernandez <laughs> is interesting. And, and they had this guy, uh, Wandy Peralta, who I'm just waiting to write yeah. about. And if you take him, I swear to God that something's <laughs> going to happen here. But Wandy Peralta, by the way, he's only thrown like eight or nine innings so far, but batters have missed more often than they've made contact when they've swung against him. It's insane. He has like easily. <laughs> The highest swing strike rate in baseball and he like everybody else he throws really hard at a good slider so he's fun yeah. and oh by the way he has one of the fastest paces did we already talk about when he on this podcast i think we did
0: just briefly yeah, yeah that i asked michael lorenzen on my other baseball podcast about how the reds had worked more quickly than any other team he didn't really have a, a great answer he didn't say it was like their secret strategy or anything like that but he was Seemingly aware of the fact that they have worked quickly And yeah, as you pointed out Peralta has been the quickest, right? Yeah, I feel like a
1: Lorenzen answer would be Something along the lines of I have all the best pitches and all the best <laughs> swings There's nothing I can't <laughs> do Ask yeah. me about me
0: <laughs> Alright, you wanted to talk about another NL Central team
1: Yeah, Reds division rival I guess, To the
0: Reds have rivals or are they too bad? <laughs> anyway,
1: the Pirates have made some news Lately because, well, one, they're bad But they've called up a pitcher named Davidus Nivaroskas he is the first ever Lithuanian player in Major mm-hmm. League Baseball history, and just today they have called up Mpo Gift Ngope, who is the first ever not only South African player in the Major Leagues, but the first general African player in the Major Leagues. Now, <laughs> granted, Nevoraskis, I think, was called up because of problems with the pitching staff, and Ngope was called up because David Freese has some sort of, what, hamstring or groin injury, some sort of minor thing. Ngope has not been dominating in the minor leagues, he's 27 years old he stands five foot eight which is very cute and short but mm-hmm. these seem like moves that mean a lot to other people and are less about the roster and and tactics of it all I don't think nevorosska and gope are going to lead the Pirates to the playoffs but nevertheless it's very cool to see first-time players according to baseball reference now this takes us up to I've got 20 places of origin that have one player in major league history would you like me to read them out because I'm going to yeah sure go ahead all right so starting from the bottom we've got Vietnam one Switzerland Singapore Philippines Lithuania Latvia Indonesia Hong Kong Honduras Guam Greece Finland Denmark China Belize Belgium American Samoa Afghanistan and the always popular at sea there's one <laughs> one who player at sea? <laughs> uh, according to baseball reference who was born at sea it's Ed Pore, who played in 1914 he pitched in three games I kind of uh, his birthplace is listed as Atlantic Ocean uh, he lived to be 25 years old I'm just going to have to click through to see what the deal is with yeah, Poray why do. he was born on a boat well, let's check out the bullpen wiki Ed Pore, according to this page was born at sea okay we, we know yeah, that we established that there does not appear to be any actual biographical information it, <laughs> Further I guess born December 5th 1888 in a ship on the Atlantic Ocean uh, He did not die in At the age of 24 That was a, a misprint uh, 1954 so he lived to be uh, 65 which is Okay that's fine mm-hmm. Pretty good for someone born at sea uh, So <laughs> I currently don't have more Biographical information on Ed Porre I have not looked it up Let's see however uh, if there's uh, I believe more people who have died at two people have died at sea. So okay, that makes doubling more it sense. up, yeah, yeah, you'd think the sea is
0: pretty dangerous. But
1: not Ed Poré. he died in Pennsylvania. We have a Nub Clenkey and an Arthur Irwin. <laughs> Manager Earl Weaver apparently died at sea. Huh. I guess is not so funny because we were talking about people dying, but you know, seas <laughs> are a dangerous place. One, uh, the Atlantic Ocean has claimed one. The Pacific Ocean has claimed one, and the Caribbean Sea. As claimed one. But in any case, we've got all those countries with one player from them. And so I will ask to you, I suppose, what is the meaning of the first ever African player, the first ever Lithuanian player? This is an old game I think you used to play. Is this data point or trend?
0: Mm. Well, I don't know all the details of each of their stories. I'm hoping to interview them, possibly have them on a podcast to find out about that. And I can read about it too. But I don't know, are they just like freak occurrences who, I don't know, moved from those countries and got into baseball? Or are they products of baseball programs in those countries? Do you know the details? I don't know the details of well I should say I don't know the details of either but
1: mm-hmm. let's see Neveraskas he didn't like get born in Lithuania and then moved to the United mm-hmm. States he doesn't have a high school listed anywhere in, in Gope uh, I know that there's obviously like a South African WBC team that has been put together. Uh, Baseball has made inroads in Africa. And at some point, we were going to see an African player show up in the major leagues. Uh, Ngope has been in the organization, however, for a while. He signed with the Pirates at some point such that he played in 2009 with an affiliate. So he's been around for nearly a decade. Mm -hmm. I think he's been on some prospect lists. And then this year, his Minor league OPS is just six eighty seven, so he hasn't even been that good. But still, he showed up, and I think if you are a baseball playing community in either Lithuania or Africa, two very different places, yeah, there is a meaningful difference. There, there is significance in having a player reach the highest level, even if only briefly, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, sure, this gives N'Gope a certain cachet. Cachet? Oh uh, Cachet. This is when <laughs> I reveal myself as a writer, not a talker. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So Wikipedia says that Ngope's mom was a clubhouse attendant for the Randburg Met. Mets. The uh, Randburg Mets is a softball team, I think, in South Africa. And evidently he was signed. Let's see. he was invited to MLB's Academy in Italy. Where the Pirates signed him So yeah, I guess he's a product Of the fledgling Baseball community there So that's interesting, I'm not sure about nebraska's but yeah, I mean I'm sure even if there isn't Usually a ton of interest in baseball In those countries, having A representative in the big leagues Will probably generate some interest And attention, and that can only Lead to good things for the sports Growth, so cool for those guys And cool for everyone
1: I'll read to you a headline from a blog entry. I've not read the blog entry, but we have the quizzical case of Ed Poré, cruise ship baby, or baseball's first merman. (laughs) Does it answer the question? Uh, This appears to be a satirical blog entry. Mm, Uh, However, it concludes Ed Poré, ship baby, merman, or resident of Atlantis. (laughs) <laughs> the truth is out there. Although, first one, we do have a uh, a saber entry at Barry Society for American Baseball Research. There is something written up here. So if you give me one minute to try to read this entry, well, I can't. There is no entry. Never mind. <laughs> okay. There are no words. <laughs> only all the same information that we already had. So I think we shall assume for now that he was born on a cruise ship. Yes. Hopefully right.
0: not a rescue. Shit. Earl Weaver evidently died on an Orioles fantasy cruise That's oh, no. not what anyone had in mind for that That's event, I'm sure I, right. I have no, no follow-up to that <laughs> Yeah, alright, let's get to some emails then So Eric Thames has hit, I think, three home runs since the last time we spoke <laughs> Which wasn't all that long ago So, Eric Thames' question, this is from Ed. He says, as everyone is currently aware, Eric Thames spent three years in the KBO and returned to MLB this season and is currently on fire for the Brewers. There is also the case of Jim Aducci, who in 12 games in Toledo, the Tigers' AAA team, hit 349, 375, 488 before being called up last week, and in two games with the Tigers has hit 600, slugged 1,000. I know these are small samples, a Chimiduchi sample particularly, but is there a potential trend here? Is the KBO better than people thought?
1: Well, I guess it depends on what people thought, but when you have the case of Thames, who clearly is, he's he's probably not this good, although who am I to say he's only gotten better since we've talked about him before.
0: He's hitting much better than he did in his best KBO season. I yeah. think we can safely say that KBO is not better than the Big Leagues. But yeah. yeah. There's there's <laughs> a, there's
1: that. Thames has been successful. Jungle Gong has been successful when he has been able to play and hasn't been under legal problems. Uh, Deho Lee hit fairly well, although he wound up exposed. Kim Soo Kim has hit pretty well. Not a whole lot of power, but he's been above average hitter. And Youngho ho Park has at least shown that his power is legit. He's just had kind of a, a strikeout problem that was probably connected to a hand or wrist injury that he had for a while. So the players that have come over have been able to hit. Jin Ryu also has been able to pitch when he has not been horribly damaged. And we've mm-hmm. seen a, a handful of very successful Korean relievers. So I think that it's still, the league as a whole is not on the level of say the uh, Japanese baseball but I don't know I guess it's it's a little like Cuba where when you select from the very top that the players tend to be successful Mm -hmm. I would think that just gong alone would have increased the scouting presence and the attention on the KBO, which I think it did because yeah. we saw some players come over in the immediate aftermath. But Thames is going to be a big one depending on how long he keeps this up because it's going to cause baseball probably to give a more serious look to the expats who are playing over there now. And we've talked about yeah. a few of them. The one that always comes to my mind is the Navarro for some reason, but there's there's a number you can just click on a KBO leaderboard on Baseball Reference, look for the bold-faced names, and those are players with major league experience. And if you are open-minded about bringing some of those players back because they learned whatever they learned, then Thames mm-hmm. is going to be sort of a different kind of pioneer from Jungle Gong. But this is this is so much... Is this, is this the most fun story in baseball? I think it's the most fun story in baseball yeah, right now.
0: I think so, yeah. I mean, it's hard because it's not like everyone who goes over there and hits better should be brought back Mm -hmm. if they struggled when they were here in the first place. Thames seems to be different in that he became a different hitter while he was there. Obviously, he became a different person physically while he was there, although he was always a pretty big guy. And you know, he learned discipline. And as we mentioned, there's the theory that maybe he learned to lay off breaking balls because he saw so many there. So there's that sort of thing. Obviously, Lots of hitters go over to the KBO or Japan and they put up big numbers. That doesn't mean that they are fixed or improved and that they'd be better if they came back over here. So that is a tough scouting challenge to determine which guys are just feasting on inferior pitching and which guys actually developed while they were there. And I would think that KBO must be tough because there are not hard throwers there really, except for the occasional foreign player who... Who throws hard. Thames, when Michael and I interviewed him over the winter, admitted that he hadn't really seen many hard throwers over there. And so that's a scouting challenge in the same way that it was for Mike Trout, for example, when he wasn't facing high-level competition in New Jersey. And so he kind of got pushed down the draft board in some teams' cases because of that. And that doesn't mean that you can't hit Good pitching but it's just hard to say if you can if you never have so it's a challenge for teams and I wonder whether there will be an effort to I don't know try to measure bat speed or try to get some of those players in workouts where they are facing good velocity just to see how they handle it because you don't really know if they're facing 80 something and breaking balls can they hit 95, 96, it's hard to say until you get to see them do it, and you might not get to see them do it. As a fun fact, last
1: year, Eric Thames was actually the second best hitter in Korea. There was a uh, Hyungwoo Choi who had an OPS that was 10 points better. He is Uh not a bold-faced name. He's uh, three years older than Thames, but that would be interesting. Now, you, I will call upon your brief experience in scouting school and having (laughs) been there when you watch Eric Thames, obviously one will be biased by his results, but what do you see in Eric Thames? Because when I look at him hit, he is so quick to the ball. There is Mm -hmm. no kind of load. There's like no exaggerated step. He's just so strong and so quick. I really don't
0: know what weakness will or would be exposed in a hitter like this. Right. Yeah. No, it, doesn't look like he's exploitable. He doesn't swing at any bad pitches and his swing seems pretty compact and quick and powerful. And definitely some of the home runs he's hit recently have been a result of Reds just moving (laughs) pitches. Like the one he hit out from Amir Garrett the other day, the one he hit on Tuesday, those are just meatballs right down the middle. And so it's not like every home run he's hit has been some sort of Aaron Judge shot that goes 450 feet or that like he hits balls that no one else can hit out out like it's not like you've done one of your patented posts about how he hit a ball that was farther outside than anyone else has ever hit a home run off of that sort of thing his (laughs) home runs have come on some meatballs but And I wonder, I I was just looking at the zone rate against him, and it seems like just even in maybe the last few games, pitchers have been avoiding the zone even more against him as you would expect them to. So, yeah, I don't know. Like If if they don't throw him meatballs anymore, it still doesn't seem as if he's going to struggle because he's not swinging at those pitches. So it just doesn't look like he's a guy who's going to fall off all that much, although obviously he's not going to hit 11 home runs every month.
1: Yeah, I guess Eric Thames really is Barry Bonds. Uh, you look at what he, he signed for, and clearly there was a, a healthy amount of skepticism. Uh, yeah. Another player who's been successful in Korea recently is Will and Rosario, super strong, terrible defensive catcher. Went over to Korea to, I don't know, maybe he's catching. I hope he's not. He's been a successful power hitter, but this off season he was available, and he generated, it seems like, basically zero major league interest, so he re-signed in Korea. And I wonder if Rosario were available again next offseason whether he would get more of a look based on what Thames has done but then I guess on the other hand Rosario has still struck out three times as often
0: as he's walked in Mm -hmm. Korea so maybe he has not quite solved that part Mm -hmm. of the game Okay. We got a few follow-ups to the episode with Grant when we talked about the whoop that <laughs> Giants fans and Ace fans evidently do to psych out relievers in the bullpen or just pitchers in general. All of the responses, it seemed, were from West Coast listeners who mm-hmm. said that they'd seen this in the Kingdom or in Tacoma or even in San Diego or something like that. So doesn't seem like it's isolated only to the Bay Area, but it does seem to be a West Coast thing more than anything else, which is interesting. I wonder how that got started. We did get, I think, one tweet maybe about it happening in Wrigley, and we also got linked by Jay Keith in Los Angeles, who dug up a reference to this happening in Mexico City in the 60s at a baseball game, and also in Louisville in the 80s. Another response to that comes from Eric, who says, just listen to the podcast about the Machado slide and everything that followed. It seemed like a lot of that problem started because Petroya got hurt and had to be helped off the field. What if Machado had been wearing plastic spikes? Do you think a ban on metal spikes could cut down on this sort of stuff? What other implications could a change like this have?
1: Yeah, so I don't know... The complete difference between metal spikes and plastic spikes, if you have plastic spikes that are shaped just like the metal spikes, well, plastic's going to hurt too. However, I think the bigger problem is that these things usually happen because a leg gets twisted or, you know, uh, some ligament snaps or an ankle gets rolled, and that's not really mm-hmm. a problem of the spike so much as it is the problem of the grown man sliding into your body when you are in a vulnerable position. So I think, given that, I don't think that what the spike is made of really makes the difference as much as the whole body going in makes the difference.
0: Mm-hmm. Agreed. Alright, question from Robert JC Ramirez is sort of weirdly interesting Ramirez was converted from the bullpen to the rotation Due to the lack of depth for the Angels And it has been done despite the fact that Ramirez Hasn't been a starter since 2011 As a starter this year Ramirez has sat around 96 miles per hour With his fastball and at 90 with his slider Have the Angels actually found Something of worth from a reliever Who was readily available to the league As recently as last year I don't know if you've looked into J.C. Ramirez at all. Seems like the sort of guy you might write about at some point. But he was showing up in my spreadsheets the other day when I was writing about the new pitches of 2017 Mm -hmm. because he has thrown a curveball that he did not throw in previous years, according to the... Pitch FX classifications that Harry Pavlidis does. He has changed his pitch usage in some other really striking ways. Like he threw a four-seamer 60% of the time last year. It's down to 14% this year. He's throwing a sinker like a quarter of the time and then the curve and he's throwing way more sliders than he ever threw before. So it's kind of interesting that he has totally changed his Pitch selection in this role Which is something that you see A lot of pitchers do When they're moving from the bullpen to the rotation Or vice versa You have different demands And you see the same hitters uh, More or fewer times in the same game That sort of thing But it is interesting that he is doing this And seeming to succeed He's thrown six games Three starts And his ERA is nothing spectacular But Everything else looks pretty good. He has a good FIP, X fip etc. He is not walking too many guys. He is striking out more guys than he did as a dedicated reliever. So this is pretty interesting. I googled and found an article from the spring where he talked about bringing back the curveball and how he used to throw it at some point and he brought it back this year because he knew he was going to be starting and it completely changed his results and that sort of thing. So definitely interesting in that he is what 28 and you don't often see guys go from bullpen back to rotation at that age and be better than they were in the bullpen so if he keeps that up that would be pretty interesting
1: yeah right there's there's a few angles here one being that Ramirez has never really been good even when yeah. he was a uh, a reliever in the minors mm-hmm. and the majors he hasn't been special he's thrown hard for a while but I think the the reason this really comes up is because he's coming off a really good start against the A's he was his first successful start in the majors he was not very good against the Royals he was not great against the Astros and then Yesterday, he went, what, seven, I think, shutout innings, and he got up to 92 pitches. He threw super hard. He doesn't
0: lean on his fastball yeah. too much. And he's averaging, like, 97.5 with his four-seamer, which is even harder than he threw in any previous year. Yeah, yeah, he's he's he is
1: legitimately interesting. He was one of those uh, people to keep your eye on in the Angels' spring training. It was, like, him and... They were working on Alex Meyer's mechanics and he was someone Mm -hmm. who blah 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 Alex Meyer can't throw strikes but one interesting little twist about J.C. Ramirez is that against the A's if I'm reading this correctly he allowed 14 batted balls and one of them was a grounder so just based on that I have an idea of what J.C. Ramirez looks like in the (laughs) strike zone. Uh, Mm -hmm. Also I think the A's are a fly ball hitting team because they're starting to resemble the A's from 15 or so years ago but Mm -hmm. in any case yes Ramirez is very interesting. He is a player I would be writing out Probably today, if not for the fact that in our <laughs> company, Slack, you know, already said interested in JC Ramirez because, you uh, know, sometimes beats me to up and coming pitchers. So, mm-hmm. This is when I will play the role of hoping that for a short amount of time J.C. Ramirez fails to make Eno look bad And then he (laughs) changes something, he gets better And then I can write about him later in the summer And then I can say like, yes, I am on the J.C. Ramirez bandwagon (laughs) I'm not there yet, but the stuff clearly interesting enough To keep your eye on J.C. Ramirez as a rare, interesting angel starter In the absence of Garrett Richards Mm -hmm.
0: All right, question from Joey I just watched Justin Turner get thrown out on the bases With Adrian Gonzalez at bat and it got me thinking, do you think ball players have humility in moments like this? Like, did Turner get back to the locker room and say, my bad, guys, I goofed. And Gonzalez said, it's okay, pal. I probably would have struck out anyway. And they left it like that. Do we even want them to have humility in that way? Is it somehow weak if they do?
1: I think they do. I think we've seen enough post-game interviews, even when players will say to the press, like, I made a a mistake, I made a bad decision. I think there are certainly ways in which players will not admit that they're doing things wrong I think this is a problem with the recently DFA Leonis Martin. I think there was mm. an issue. Uh, this is secondhand because I didn't read the article, but I think there was an issue in spring training where Martin was like, I would like to keep hitting grand balls. And then Edgar Martinez was like, but you shouldn't. And then Martinez was like, but I'm going to. And then Edgar <laughs> Martinez a few weeks later was like, well, you're off the team. So yeah, I think there are certainly areas where players are stubborn. But when you have a case like a bad out on the bases or forgetting how many outs there are in the field, then I don't really. I don't think that there's a player who's going to like double down and say, no, I was right. Mm-hmm. I was right about the two outs being the third out or something. Yeah. Or I made a great decision on the bases and it's just the umpire blew it or the uh, the other team made a great play. I think that, uh, yeah, I think in a situation like this, this is certainly with a veteran who's been around like Justin Turner, he's going to tell Adrian Gonzalez or his entire team, whoopsie doodle. And then Gonzalez will be like, well, that's fine. I haven't been very good anyway.
0: Yeah, I mean, I find self deprecation to be a very endearing quality most of the time, not just in baseball, but in life. And I don't know if it's that common. Like baseball players are very driven, self confident people. I think they almost have to be to become major league baseball players, or at least it would be helpful to think that way, maybe, and think that you're invincible and great and not want to admit weakness. But I think it's an attractive quality when someone who is good at things is willing to admit that they are sometimes bad at things. So if a player were to come out and say something like that, I would like him even more for it. I guess you run the risk of seeming like you don't care enough, like you're just being kind of offhand or flip about it like you made a mistake and a lot of fans take those things seriously and their mood is riding on every play in every game and so if it seems at all like the hitter or the player isn't taking that hard maybe some fans would object to that but I would like it and I'm sure it does happen to a certain extent you hear it sometimes yeah a few years ago uh Jose Altuve This is 2015. Jose Altuve, a few years ago, led the league with 13
1: caught steals. Uh, He was picked off eight times, and he made 19 other outs on the bases, including eight at home. In Jose Altuve's rest of his career combined, he's made seven outs at home. So Mm -hmm. I don't know what Jose Altuve thought he was doing in 2015, but I would assume that after each of those outs on the bases, he went back to the dugout and expressed some Form of humility because otherwise, I think the Astros would be extremely frustrated with what Jose Altuve
0: was. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Question from Chris. In the timeless classic Space Jam, the NBA commissioner announces that until the health of the players can be guaranteed, the season would be canceled. This happened after just five top stars became incapable of even dribbling a basketball. My question is how many top MLB players? would have to have their baseball prowess sapped to the point where they can't even play catch by cartoon aliens before Rob Manfred canceled the season. Would that number be different if instead of top MLB players, they were randomly selected players?
1: So remind me about Space Jam. Did they know that aliens were responsible or was it just players who Uh, weren't being good? I think that they didn't know.
0: Yeah, I don't think they knew. And so this would basically be like if a bunch of players got the yips all of a sudden. Right. Okay. So,
1: this is essentially if a whole bunch of Mike Trouts were swapped with a whole bunch of Ben Lindberghs and Jeff Sullivans, then (laughs) Mm -hmm. how long would it take? Okay. So, one would be weird. Are we assuming this is happening basically simultaneously?
0: Yeah, I guess so.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, if if you have a bunch of players, let's say like uh, five or six or ten players who just suddenly look like they have an advanced stage of a neurological illness uh, Mm -hmm. and it just happens all of a sudden... You can't hide that. People would be asking questions immediately. I think they would have studies commissioned almost immediately, and I think that if it's widespread like that, then you would have players uh, quite fearful. Uh, we've mm. already seen a, we've already seen some baseball events cancelled because of the Zika virus, mm. because there was concern about uh, players and their their families getting a disease. And I think that if you had something like this, even if it might be irrational, although I don't know what the aliens are going to do that you would have players fearful that, well, if it happened to other players who were good, it could happen to them, players would be resistant to play. I think it would take between, I mean, it it could be one, but I think you it's really proof of spread. So if it happened to multiple, maybe at least four players, then you would have enough of a crisis that there would at least be a suspended baseball season and and it would stop there. Now, I don't mm-hmm. know, there's not necessarily linked link to like this performance and then the players being like grave danger in terms of staying alive off the field maybe it's just their baseball skills being sapped however i think if you're a player looking at mike trout dropping everything unable to even hold a baseball bat then you think well this person can't really live a functional life i don't want to Mm -hmm. play baseball anymore now granted i don't know how you would as a player conclude that it was contagious only through the act of playing baseball you might just figure that you'll get it anyway but i think that the players would not be in the right state of mind to keep playing
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i agree And we have a related question, sort of, Of from Sean Cusack, a Patreon supporter. He says, let's say for some unexplainable reason, every batter Clayton Kershaw faces for the rest of his life gets a clean base hit off him. All his pitches stay exactly the same. Movement and velocity, he has the same command, but the batters just keep getting hits. How long would it be before he throws his last major league pitch? Keep in mind, he's got a contract that the Dodgers probably wouldn't want to just release because of five or six terrible starts. And I guess we've answered similar Mike Trout questions in the past, like if he's suddenly bad, although maybe this is different in that he is not bad process-wise, but his results are inexplicably bad. Yeah, I
1: don't think it would take very long at all. The I think a critical component of this question that's missing is whether this happens to Kershaw whenever he pitches anywhere or whether it's just in the major leagues because Mm. if he's throwing all the same stuff if he allowed constant hits for even like two starts you would have the team looking into it trying to figure out what's wrong if it happens three starts then they would deactivate him and I don't know exactly what you do with the Clayton Kershaw but like have him throw side sessions or send him to extended spring training or something so that's where it gets interesting if if he goes to like extended spring or like some low level minor league program and then he's just giving up hits all the time, then you think, well, something clearly is broken. However, if he's just dominating extended spring and the low level minors, then you say, well, he's Clayton Kershaw again. And then you just bring him back up. Then he allows constant hits, and then you send it back down, then you bring it back up, and you have this constant shuffle, because as long as he's under contract and throwing Clayton Kershaw level stuff, you're going to think he's going to be fine, because of
0: course how would this how would this ever happen? How would this ever happen? <laughs> yeah. But That's the thing. Like if he's throwing just as hard with the same movement and spin rate and everything, there's no way to bench him without essentially admitting that something supernatural is happening? Like, <laughs> unless you have a reason, like if he's... I mean, that's the thing. How would you ever justify it? This would have beyond baseball implications. This would be some sort of existential crisis, right? Because it would almost necessitate that there be some sort of curse on Clayton Kershaw if he is still the same guy in every way except that he keeps giving up hits.
1: Yeah, I think that if if something like this started to happen to Clayton Kershaw, then it would be a short amount of time before we would all start putting a lot more stock in things like fortune cookies.
0: (laughs) Yeah. All right. Do you have a stat segment? Let's do it. Eric Thames.
1: Eric Thames (laughs) stat segment, sort of. Eric Thames to this point has hit 11 home runs, the overwhelming majority of which have come against the Cincinnati Reds, who we continue to discuss on this podcast. I was curious about players dominating other teams as a consequence of this. Mm. This is probably something you've looked at before, but I don't care. A baseball reference does not make it super easy to look up greatest or highest all time home run totals against individual teams because when you use the play index to search for splits against opponents included in there are interleague splits. Splits against winning percentages of 500 or better and splits against winning percentages under 500, those splits will dominate the individual team splits. That was something I didn't need to go through. But in any case, I wanted to go into this and look at the players who have hit the most home runs against a team in a season. I couldn't do that. So I decided instead to look at the players who have homered the most against the Reds. So this is all time. Eric Thames is already tied for 12th place with eight home runs against the Reds. A few years ago, Anthony Rizzo hit eight home runs against the Reds. Uh, he did that in 42 more plate appearances. Eric Thames currently has no PS against the Reds. That's so over two. That is over two. The whole number two. That is what Eric Thames has been doing to the Reds. <laughs> mm-hmm. At eight, it's a list that includes names like Willie McCovey, Eddie Matthews, Hank Aaron, Ron Gant, Dante Bichette, Moise Alou, and it it continues. Now, going forward... Uh, Derek Lee has hit nine home runs in a season against the Reds, so is Lance Berkman, so has Lance Berkman, he did that twice, so is Hank Aaron, Will Clark, moving up to 10. Chris Bryant last year hit 10 home runs against the Reds, which is something I, I guess I kind of missed, uh, but also internalized, because I think the Cubs <laughs> did all of their damage against the Reds, yeah. <laughs> which was an easier point to make before they won the World Series. <laughs> mm-hmm. However, first place is a tie at 11 Uh, Eddie Matthews hit 11 home runs against the Reds in 1953, and a player named Earl Torgeson in 1950 hit 11 home runs also against the Reds. I am not or have not been familiar with Earl Torgeson. He is not quite on the level of Eddie Matthews. However, he did have an 802 OPS for his career. He had 149 home runs, many of which came against the Reds. Good for him. I continued looking for other splits, abandoning home runs. So, okay, everybody knows OPS+. Or at least Mm -hmm. most everybody on this podcast knows OPS Plus. Do I need to go over T OPS Plus again?
0: Yeah, we've done it before, but might as well.
1: Yeah, might as well. It's essentially uh, OPS Plus relative to your overall OPS+. So like if you have a really good performance against right-handed pitchers and you really struggle against lefties, then your T OPS plus will be quite good against righties and quite low against lefties, the average, of course, being 100, just like with OPS plus. So I looked at players who've been the most dominant all time against individual teams relative to what they usually were i don't know Mm -hmm. how much sense that makes so the way this came out is that there's a the list is leaded by a couple or almost leaded by a couple of pitchers which is not so interesting like don carmen is up there in a split even though his ops in the split was 206 he just Mm -hmm. didn't hit so like the second most dominant performer of all time against one team was pitcher bob turley who could not hit however against the twins He had a 577 OPS, which gave him a T OPS plus of 236. Whatever, Bob Mm -hmm. Gurley could never hit, except (laughs) against the Twins, where he was slightly less terrible. But, Mm -hmm. number one, more fun. There is a player who was recently on a Hall of Fame ballot, did not go anywhere. Todd Zeal, in his career against the Anaheim, or I guess also California Angels, he batted 118 times. He had an OPS of 1.356, which means he had a T OPS plus of 246. Todd Mm. Zeal was basically 150% better against the Angels than he was against anybody else. Reading down this list, we have a Wayne Krenchicki, who was dominant against the San Diego Padres. Julio Logo, dominant against the Phillies. I'm going to quit reading this list because it is not that interesting. I looked (laughs) then at current, or I guess active players, who have been Mm -hmm. the most dominant against teams. I lowered the minimum here to 50 plate appearances and I looked at both T-OPS plus and regular OPS to see who has been most dominant and then also who's been most dominant relative to their own baseline. The same player and the same split lead, both leaderboards. Mm -hmm. So Travis Snyder in his career, sort of a busted top prospect, but also, you know, eight years of major league experience. So he did okay. Travis Snyder, career 709 OPS. Can you guess who he dominated in his career? Because he's dominated them more than anyone has ever dominated anybody.
0: <laughs> I do not recall Travis Snyder's career with that level of detail. Who's
1: been a bad pitching staff for basically the last decade?
0: Uh, The Rockies. Minnesota Twins. Travis mm. Snyder has batted
1: 54 times against the Minnesota Twins. His OPS has been 1.385. That is the highest active OPS for any player against any team with a minimum of 50 plate appearances, which actually surprises me a little bit. I was expecting something higher. In second place, Trey Turner dominating the Braves, then Corey Dickerson dominating the, here we are, the Reds, Chris Davis dominating the Giants, and then Josh Donaldson dominating the Phillies. By T-OPS+, plus instead of full OPS, so just in terms of dominance relative to oneself, Again, we have Travis Snyder against the Twins with a T-OPS plus of 285, which is fantastic. <laughs> Showing up on this list for, it's not exactly the same, but in interleague games, which whatever, I guess accounts for something. Sandy Leone, Garrett Parker, both tied at 228. T OPS plus anyway back to teams Ryan Hannigan against the Padres T OPS plus of 226 Chris Dickerson Against the Pirates 224 Kendrick Morales I don't know Where are the interesting names here we go Clayton Kershaw Against the Rockies Mm. oh T OPS plus of 212 he's batted 87 Times and he has a 578 OPS so all right Clayton Kershaw (laughs) I guess While I'm looking at this I might as well look at a Sort in ascending order right to see who's been Terrible it's sort of the opposite So let's let's do that Active players, who has been the worst? Uh, oh, look, John Lester. Less interesting. Jan Gomes. Okay, Jan Gomes. to plus of negative 23 against the Oakland Athletics. Where's a fun name in here? Let's see. Jay Bruce, negative 12 against the Yankees. Addison Russell, negative 10 against the Dodgers. Does it get more interesting? Yeah, Just a handful of pitchers on here. Mike Leek, not been good as a hitter against the Cubs. Well, he's not mm. a very good hitter, so that makes sense. Bartolo Colon. Bartolo Colon is a negative 5 TOPS plus against teams with a winning percentage of 500 or better. Boy, that's a stat that is not fun to say out loud on a podcast.
0: Yeah, that's like one of those stereotypical stats that people think is what Sabermetrics is. Like the, <laughs> the meaningless small sample split that is actually the opposite of what Sabermetrics is. Like what a guy does on night games on Tuesdays in the seventh inning or whatever. That's one of those. Yeah, right. All right. So let me let me just conclude this. Not quite a leaderboard statistic, but
1: just looking at Trey Turner and how I guess you could say he has played favorites. Trey Turner has batted uh, at least 50 times against two teams, the Atlanta Braves and the New York Mets. Not a surprise. They are division rivals. Trey Turner against the Atlanta Braves has posted a 1.347 OPS and Trey Turner against the New York Mets has posted a 4.75 OPS. A difference of basically 900 points for Trey Turner by T OPS plus. It's a difference of 195 to 11. Trey Turner has played favorites in the National League East.
0: Hmm. Feels like Daniel Murphy, since leaving the Mets, <laughs> would maybe have been added to this list for his performance against the Mets. But I can look yeah. that up in a not quite a split second, but several split seconds.
1: Okay, Daniel Murphy, this is easy enough because he's played his entire career with the Mets except for the last year and change. So do you have a guess? Uh, Daniel Murphy has batted against the Mets 95 times. Okay, that's pretty good. Can you guess the first digit of his OPS? <laughs> One? Correct. Can you guess the second <laughs> digit of his OPS? I'll give hmm. you the decimal. <laughs> uh, I'll say Three. One. It's one. Mm, uh, Daniel Murphy against the Mets. He's batted 95 times, which feels like it's a lot, but okay. Uh, He has batted 386. He's slugged 727. He has a 1.148 OPS. The only team against whom he has a higher career OPS is the Kansas City Royals at 1.179 in a far smaller sample. So Daniel Murphy has dominated
0: the New York Mm -hmm. Mets. Yeah. Okay. Question from... David, is there any proof that leadoff walks score more often than leadoff singles? Answer: No. <laughs> I guess that's <laughs> that is the end of the answer. No, I I googled. There have been several studies on this because this is one of those things that gets repeated over and over and over again. That's why David asked. He heard it on a Nationals broadcast, and it is not true. One of the the first results I found was from John Duan at. Bill James online, and he found that a leadoff single scores 38% of the time. A leadoff walk also scores 38% of the time. The average runs scored in the inning are also the same. So that was just one year, but there are several studies I found very quickly confirming that very same thing. We've all heard this expression, the dreaded leadoff walk. I think pretty much every broadcast says it,
1: even mm-hmm. the some of the smarter broadcasts. Why, assuming the pattern is Pretty much always held true, and I don't know, I can't think of any reason why it wouldn't have. Why do you think where's the threshold where just enough leadoff walks score that people start thinking leadoff walks always score? Because
0: at thirty-eight percent, obviously it's it's practically one out of every 3 Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it's just more frustrating in some way. Like when you see a pitcher allow a single, that's something that the better earned in a way. Of course, batters earn walks by being selective and fouling off pitches and all of that also, but maybe it's less obvious that they do. So if a pitcher comes out and starts an inning by immediately putting himself behind in that way, I suppose it's frustrating and feels silly and like a waste. And then you remember when it comes back to bite you and you can you conveniently forget all the times when it doesn't
1: yeah right there's there are, people hate the lead-off walk people hate when a reliever comes in walks the first guy faces people hate the uh the two outs no pressure walk i think people yeah. just really hate walks i think mm-hmm. there's a definite strike bias now of course for a pitcher strikes are good but you know walks are not the end of the world obviously and it's like the the whole thing about pitching to contact to try to be more efficient. Well, you pitch to contact, you actually aren't efficient. Your at-bats might last less time, but you're going to have more at-bats because there's going to be more
0: hits, and that's not actually a, a good thing for a pitcher or a team. All right. Different David asks, obviously, OBP says a lot about a player's production, but what B- Billy Hamilton recently did on the base paths, singled to lead off the game, then stole his way to third and scored on a Joey Vado sack fly. Billy Hamilton does this sort of thing all the time, made me realize that not all OBP is created equal. That is, a team can probably stomach someone with Hamilton's sub-300 on-base percentage if, when he actually does get on base, he makes the most of it. So could a player with a sub-300 OBP actually be just as productive as a guy with, say, a 390 OBP if he can essentially stretch any single into a triple with his wheels? More broadly, when evaluating a player how much should we weigh his propensity to get on base versus the value he adds relative to other players once he actually gets there?
1: Yeah, well, so the good news is we do have base running metrics that try Mm -hmm. to assign run values to scale on the bases. It will surprise very few people that Billy Hamilton is pretty much the best base runner of at least, maybe not all time, but recent time. He's been fantastic. Of course, this year he also has not been able to hit, which is a very common theme for him. However, in 2015, uh, at least according to Fangraphs, Billy Hamilton added... More than easily, like a win and a half basically on the bases. Last year, he did the same thing. So far, this year, he's already three runs better than average on the bases. Uh, another way to kind of look at this is that last year, 30% of the time a runner reached, uh, he came around to score, which is pretty good. Uh, baseball reference actually keeps track of this in uh, a hard to find statistic that they call a run scoring percentage. Mm-hmm. It's a percentage of times a base runner eventually scores a run. So when Billy Hamilton was on base, he scored forty six percent of the time. That's very high. Uh, that mm-hmm. is a, a good sign regarding his base running. Now that wasn't so outlandish because Jose Reyes was at forty five percent, Delano de Shields is at forty eight percent, Eddie Rosario was at forty five percent. I didn't realize a Rosario reached base ever last <laughs> season, but he did, you know, to score. Mm-hmm. D Gordon scored 43% of the time. Uh, I can keep going. Ian Desmond scored 42% of the time, etc. So I guess the fastest players seem to score somewhere between 40-45% of the time that they are on base. Uh, of course, Billy Hamilton is better than his raw OBP, just like name any Tiger is worse than his high OBP because <laughs> they can't run the bases. There are limits and as much as I think people like to think of a single and a steal as being the same as a double, it's definitely not because doubles move runners up more, and singles and steals do not. So mm-hmm. you can't just give Billy Hamilton credit for that. It's all about partial runs, but nobody, nobody gets uh, makes up for a terrible OBP quite like Billy
0: Hamilton does. That is that much we know for certain. David also asks what Billy Hamilton's slugging percentage would be if you added his stolen bases to his total bases. He says stolen bases don't count as total bases, but that seems sort of silly. Well, if you do that, last year he slugged 343. He had 141 total bases and 58 steals if you add those 58 steals. To his total bases and then divide by his at-bats, suddenly he has a 484 slugging percentage, which is awfully good for a, an elite defensive center fielder. I don't know whether that makes perfect mathematical sense to do that, but there is certainly something to the idea. He is obviously contributing those bases, even if he's not doing it with his bat, and that does go a long way toward making up for his lack of power and lack of on-base ability billy hamilton by batting runs
1: last season famous put him at a value of negative 12.4 runs which would have made him the batting equivalent of basically kevin pilar well that's fitting kevin pilar sucks too but (laughs) when you fold in base running value then that gave billy hamilton an offensive value of plus 0.4 runs basically average and that would have put hamilton on par with a player such as, uh, well, Yunel Escobar. Does that do it for you? <laughs> Bernard man, Yasmani Tomas. Players who aren't considered, uh, I guess, good, but who are not <laughs> offensive zeros. So that's what Billy Hamilton is. You fold in the base running to his offense, and he
0: is officially as good, but not better than Yunel Escobar. <laughs> okay, Well, that's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Question from Steven in Portland. Imagine you're a team president, and your best scout unearths a fourth Seeger brother. You know that this Seager is 18 years old, plays baseball, and is roughly 6'2 and 215 pounds, somewhere between Kyle and Corey. Would you sign this player sight unseen? And if so, what's a reasonable bonus or contract ignoring the draft in this hypothetical?
1: Isn't this basically like the thing about signing Clayton Kershaw's kid sight unseen? Yes, mm-hmm. basically. I guess the, it's the exact same thing. Okay, <laughs> so this is a, an adult instead yeah. of an infant. Okay, so we have a, a baseball playing fourth Seeger we know that one of the Seagers is great we know that uh, a second Seeger is basically great and we know that a third Seeger is at least organizational fodder he's mm-hmm. around this is Justin Seeger we speak of know the name Justin Seeger but then you can also immediately forget it <laughs> uh, the whole bloodline thing has worked out often enough for people to notice it's tempting to think about yeah uh, I would sign him sight unseen I don't know what a fair bonus would be but I would pay him I don't know Sight unseen, I'd pay him like a I don't know, a fourth or fifth rounder. That's not very much to me organizationally. It's uh, mm-hmm. Kyle Seeger was not a, a real high draft pick, but kind of underrated. I think that if you look at Kyle Seeger, you can see why he's why he was underrated because he doesn't look like an elite athlete. Uh, he doesn't really <laughs> he looks an, like an adult baby a little bit. So <laughs> sorry, Meg. Yeah, well <laughs> this is nothing <laughs> new to her. So you uh yeah, I would I would pay him the equivalent of a fourth round fourth or fifth round draft pick and then i would i would probably scout him so that he's sight seen mm-hmm. after he's in the organization
0: yeah well that's one caveat that you pointed out via your email response to this question which is why do we not know about this seeger what are they hiding and that would have to <laughs> right. make you worried about, about this response. right he, yeah he's uh, i mean he's a member of a famous baseball family he's a member of a, a bloodline with three very good baseball playing siblings why are we not aware of this fourth seeger and that would perhaps make you worry about fact that he was not better known so if you take that into account maybe you just have to assume that he is the runt of the litter or something
1: yeah that's true okay so my first private response actually is better than my first public response private <laughs> response is superior i yeah there's there would be a real mystery here why do why have none of the seegers discussed the fourth seeger brother is kind of like what was his name hugo the Simps- mm. simpson child <laughs> In the crawl space in the attic. I think you yeah, you definitely have to wonder if it's like Hugo Seeger, then maybe I just kinda keep my distance. Yeah.
0: Alright. Question from Kaim. This one is actually somewhat similar to the earlier Space Jam and Clayton Kershaw hypotheticals. This one (laughs) is inspired by the nineties Nickelodeon cartoon Hey Arnold, which was an excellent (laughs) show. He says, during this episode called Dangerous Lumber, every time Arnold comes to bat, he unintentionally hits one of the fielders or the pitcher. So my question is this, if there were an MLB player who every time he steps up to the plate and makes contact, he beans and most likely injures one of the fielders on the opposing team, how long would it take for the league to notice? Would the league take action against this player? Hypothetically, this player would hit 1,000, but he would also injure a lot of other players in the process. Do you recall this episode? It's on YouTube. I didn't remember it well. I watched a a brief clip of it and intended to watch the whole episode because, hey, Arnold, was good, but I ended up not having time. So it's out there for anyone who wants to look. So if we were to make this hypothetical in
1: any way realistic, we're probably talking almost all the time about comebackers that hit pitchers. I don't really know how else batted balls hit field. I guess you could sort of indirectly cause like outfield collisions. I guess that would count, and then you're actually injuring at least two, maybe even three players at at the same time. God, that's that's hard.
0: I don't know what you would do. Or some sort of weird spin. We actually got a different question about a player who reaches on error every time, and you said it would be like the most fascinating story in baseball that he is somehow applying some weird, unique spin that no fielder can account for.
1: Yeah, as much as we get all these weird hypotheticals that come into a baseball podcast, really they all end up submitting to scientific journals because there's a lot (laughs) that would be unexplained. Because the thing about somebody who hits a home run every time or injures defending players all the time or reaches on error all the time is that it takes like five instances in a row before you're like, okay, this this is there's clearly something supernatural going on. So in this God, in this case where I don't, oh my God, okay, so. Let's let's say it's a guy who's just constantly hitting comebackers that ding off pitchers' heads, which is yeah. terrible. <laughs> know. So if you do it twice, at I mean, the player would retire. He would walk away. Yeah, there would be you'd be so overcome with grief and trauma. <laughs> what gets lost a lot when a player hits one of those horrible dome comebackers uh, off a pitcher is that you know obviously the person most affected is the pitcher whose brain hurts. Right, but you have this this player who's just racked with guilt because he just did that to a person. You think of baseball as such a safe game. When I was in when I was in high school, I was uh, a pitcher and I got clocked in the head by a comebacker off the bat and I was mm-hmm. messed up for I don't know, a year. Effects continue now. But mm-hmm. the uh, the person who hit the ball was also traumatized, not of course to the same extent. That person was not hospitalized, but we had a bond form over the incident where he <laughs> caused my brain to swell in my head. So It's horrible to do that to anyone. If you do it once, obviously you kind of get over it. You think, okay, that was a fluke. You do it twice in a row, you think, oh my god, I am the second least fortunate, or I guess third least fortunate person in the game today. But then you do it three, four, five times in a row, and I think that you would have a player who would... He would require canceling almost immediately. We're talking like one or two games. He would not be able to get over it, and so you would have a player... I wouldn't say that he developed the yips, but he would be so afraid to swing that he would become unplayable. So I think yeah. he, the player would take action before the
0: league. Now, if the player were a complete sociopath, or like, the, <laughs> <laughs> there's a character on the Expanse, the sci-fi show this season, who just had like the a magnet passed across the lobe of his brain that's responsible for empathy, and so he is completely fine with like millions of people dying in pursuit of his scientific interest. If he were like that, then if he were allowed to continue to play, he'd be the best player ever, right? Because not only would he get a hit almost every time, probably not every time, there'd be some friendly caroms and he would be thrown out, but I think he'd be the best hitter ever. And that's even before accounting for the fact that he is just decimating every other team's (laughs) pitching staff. (laughs) So he'd be immensely valuable, but no team would be heartless enough to continue to employ him because he'd be a, a menace to society. Eventually, fans would start protesting and boycotting this team's games. Rob Manfred might intervene and say that this guy can't play anymore because Even if he maintained his innocence, I think if you were to do this every time, people would assume that you were doing it on purpose somehow, that you just had the best bat control ever and you were aiming for opposing players because there's no way it could realistically happen by chance. So this guy would not get to play more than... I don't know, a game or two, even assuming that he is not wrecked with guilt and takes himself out of the game before then, which most players would. Yeah,
1: right. At some point, either the team would stop, he'd stop playing either because of his team making the decision, the league making the decision, maybe America votes him president. So we don't really know what's going to happen <laughs> with this guy. But, you know, even if he's like essentially blackballed from major league baseball, let, let's say he is a total sociopath. Obviously, he want he got to a high level, so he was very motivated to continue to playing. He's probably going to play elsewhere. Maybe even if not with an affiliate, he'll go to indie ball, or he'll go to Japan or South Korea or Mexico, and he'll just damage pitchers there. So he's just it's going to be this thing that just doesn't end, provided the player wants to just keep going. You can't really put him in jail for this, you know, you, <laughs> unless he's just like you can prove that he's a wizard, which will Right. I guess we've <laughs> tested for witches before, but we mm-hmm. haven't done that for a while. So he would just ruin lives in different countries for probably years, and it would become this weird... I mean, you, you co-ran an uh, independent team, and there would be so much attention on this player that people I- with indie league teams would have sort of a conflict where they think, well, this would be good publicity, but bad for cerebral health in the area if we signed this player so I don't know if he'd get like the Jose Canseco treatment to just kind of float around or what but if he and you know, even if he stopped playing baseball, does this is this a carryover thing where like no matter what he does, someone gets injured whenever he does anything successful? It's this <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what you do. You can't put the person
0: in jail, but society would be better if this person were in prison. Yeah. All right, let's see if we can get a quick couple under the wire. Michelle says, after Bryce Harper's two home run game, one of which was a grand slam, I have to ask this question which team will be the first to intentionally walk Bryce Harper with the bases loaded? It's gotta happen,
1: right? I don't know him or Eric Thames first I'm not sure which ones sooner are <laughs> yes. going to take place I don't remember Tom Tango has written an entry or maybe it was Mitchell Lichtman I don't remember who did it talking about whether the math ever made sense to actually intentionally walk Barry Bonds with right. the bases loaded Barry Bonds is of course the standard bearer for being God at mm-hmm. the plate Eric Thames is South Korean God Barry Bonds is American God. And uh, I think, I don't know, do you remember the article off the top of your head? Was it ever actually justified? I don't
0: remember the conclusion, but it's extremely, extremely rare, if ever, and that was the best hitter ever.
1: Right, and you figure that behind Bryce Harper will always be another good hitter, whether it's uh, Daniel Murphy or the rejuvenated Ryan Zimmerman or Adam Eaton or any of the other nationals. It's not like it goes Bryce Harper-Pitcher. So uh, there's going to be a good hitter next. I don't, especially in this day and age where managers think more rationally than ever because they're basically puppets of the front office above them. And every front office is run by Wall Street mm-hmm. alumni, I guess, that it's very difficult for me to see Bryce Harper actually walked with, intentionally walked with the bases loaded. You could see sort of unintentional intention or Unintentional, intentional walks, intentional, unintentional walks. I forgot which way it is, but you'll mm-hmm. see guys pitch around him with a base loaded because they're just terrified, and so of course that's going to happen. But I think it's more likely that you will see him intentionally walked with a base empty sometimes.
0: Yeah, and of course there was speculation that Harper being pitched around last year was one of the things that led to his slump. I was sort of skeptical about that being the primary reason, but potentially it's something that could get in a player's head if you did it. But it would have to really get in his head to do it, because otherwise it would backfire. I wanted to say something about that. People have given Joe Madden a lot of
1: credit (laughs) because he intentionally walked Harper a bunch in May but mm-hmm. uh, if I recall, it was, no, it was the Phillies who did that first. They walked yeah. him a whole bunch in a series at the end of April. And I'm tired of Joe Madden getting credit that he doesn't deserve. <laughs> That's great. Okay, he walked Harper Bunch. Well, the Phillies did it first. So just shove it about Joe Madden. He got the World Series. He's clever and everything. That's fine. He wears funny glasses. The
0: Phillies <laughs> did it first. <laughs> All right. Last one, if we can answer very quickly from John. We know it is unlikely that there will ever be a limit on the number of relievers that can be used per inning or per game. It's not that unlikely, because it's something Rob Manfred has talked about at least, but hasn't happened yet. How about a pitching change clock? The reliever has X number of minutes to get from the bullpen and commence game action. If the reliever gets to the mound early, he can throw warm-up pitches. If the reliever walks slowly from the pen, no on-the-mound warm-up pitches. There can be a penalty associated with breaching the pitching change clock, such as a free ball to the batter, free base to the batter, all run move up a base the clock will help mitigate the time wasted during pitching changes but the reliever will more or less have to be ready immediately out of the pen this is something that Joe Pesnanski and Mike Sherr talked about recently on the podcast and they were recommending this and i think they allowed for one warm up pitch or something when the reliever comes up just because mounds are a little bit different and you don't want to Run the risk of the guy hurting himself because he's not used to the surface or something like that. But their point was basically that it's crazy to have relievers throw a ton of pitches in the bullpen a lot of the time and be completely ready and then come out and throw... 10 more or whatever on the mound taking up a, a ton of time when in theory they could just start pitching.
1: Yeah, I think if if the uh, reliever clock doesn't actually exist it's at least been discussed enough. I, I don't remember if there's something like that that exists in the minor leagues and yeah, all, obviously when relievers come in it's kind of a drag but I think even if you limit it to like a two minute process still It's such a boring delay because it's two minutes of nothing, even a pitching change itself. That's two minutes of downtime. You have the manager having to come out and they saunter for like 15 freaking seconds before they get to the mound and then they do their signal and then the reliever clock starts ticking. So even a faster reliever process, of course, does not eliminate the problem. So still kind of just annoying to see relievers come in, even though it makes perfect strategic
0: sense. Mm -hmm. All right. I'm going to close with a little clip in our stat segment last week. You talked about the Brent Brown play. In 1998 (laughs) It was one of the last games of the Cubs season They were tied in the wild card They were up 7-0 after 6 innings And then they were up 7-5 in the ninth. And bases loaded, 2 outs And Brent Brown, a late inning defensive replacement Dropped the ball, 3 runs scored The Cubs lost Many people pointed out that this is a famous play in Cubs lore Not only for the play But for Ron Santos' reaction to the play So I will end with that call 7-5 7-5 to five Cubs, bottom of the ninth. Two down, the Brewers have the bases loaded and a 2-2 count on the hitter. Here's the pitch, swung on, fly ball, left field, Brant Brown going back, Brant Brown... You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com effectively wild. Five listeners who have already done so include Danny Madden, Damian Masterson, Nicholas Rapp, Joel Gillespie, and Dustin Palmatier. Thanks to all of you. You can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash effectivelywild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. If you need more baseball audio, Michael and I will have a new episode of the Ringer MLB show up today. It's our last episode. Exclusive to TuneIn for those of you who are looking forward to our return to iTunes, but you can stream it for now at TuneIn.com the ringer. We talked to Jeff Blum, former big leaguer and current Astros broadcaster. We also talked to Mitchell Schwartz, Kansas City Chiefs offensive tackle, our first NFL player on the baseball podcast. It makes sense when you listen to it. Keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcastfangrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system. We will talk to you soon.
1: While this anchor's dropped
0: But I've been out on them choppy ways And it's hard to say when this land begins And that water stops I got sea legs I got sea legs I got sea legs